I will be your sermonator this evening. My name is Mike Sayers. I have been here at SCUM for 15 years, from the beginning, as they say. I think it's time for some Mikey stories. So, my dad and my mom lived down in Florida. as you would expect. Actually, they both just retired, so it's been awesome just going down there and spending time with them. And whenever I go down there, my, my dad sees me, and he always greets me with a kiss. Usually it's a kiss on the cheek or both cheeks. Sometimes it's a kiss on the lips. You never know because we're Greek and we just kiss a lot. So was no different when Mary and I went down in December to see them. Had a fantastic time. Um, I am well loved by my father. Always have been. I'm the, I'm the firstborn. And if you heard me talk a couple of times, you've known that usually I try to gain acceptance by, by complying, which is a typical firstborn trait uh, in order to, to win favor with the parents, right? But I wasn't great at it. Because I did all sorts of things that would uh, frustrate, exasperate my father, uh, make him either lose hair or turn gray. <laughs> I had an aunt who used to say to me, Mike, you know, after knowing you as a child, it's amazing how well you turned out. I, 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 <laughs> I recall uh, the time that I, that I stole my dad's company car. Uh, when I was in high school, just wanted to go out for a spin, practice driving. I think I had my temporary permit. And I came back home and they were there. As a result, I couldn't drive for an extra year. <laughs> well, he could have lost his job and been sued. I mean, it's a pretty bad scenario if I would have gotten a wreck. Um, but my, my actually, my, my escapades with cars actually started earlier than that. I was in grade school. I might have been six or seven years old. My dad took me on some errands. We had, he, had, we had, he had a bar, a Sarah's bar in Toledo, Ohio, and he had to go collect uh, on some debt. And so he took me with him on this errand. And so we drove up this steep driveway and we parked he says, just wait in the car, Michael. I'll be back soon. And so he goes to the door of the house. Meanwhile, I did what I normally did with my mom when I was waiting in the grocery store parking lot. I would slide over and then pretend like I was driving. And in those days, you could grab this gear shift level and move it up and down because you know that's what parents did when they drove. They moved the gear shift level. And there were no uh, locks on gear shift levers in those days. And so I go to grab the gear shift level. I remember it's up here. I remember that. And my dad turns around and sees my little hand grabbing the gear shift level. And, he, and he, I'll never forget this. He turns around. He sees what's going on. And through the windshield, I see him go. <laughs> just mouthing the words no and wagging his finger. 
So I slid back over to the passenger side. As soon as he went in the house and closed the door, I slid back over into the driver's seat and started playing uh, like I was driving a car, at which point the car began rolling backwards down the hill, unlike it had ever done in the parking lot at the grocery store, which was flat. And I remember going back, and I'm trying to reach the pedal. I can't even reach the brake pedal. And um, all of a sudden, I hear this crash. And I, I had hit a car coming down the street. It was my, I was my first car accident, still in first or second grade. Um, there was a time also, um, and I might have been in middle school at this point. My legs were getting kind of long. Uh, I remember that my dad was going down a residential street, actually where my cousins lived. And for some weird reason, they got this harebrained idea that I, we needed to go fast, and we needed to go fast now. So I took my left leg, and I slammed my foot on top of his right foot, which is on the accelerator. And we went from 20 miles an hour to 45 in no time. Like, vroom, and this car's parked on both sides of the road. My dad's... <laughs> he was so shocked when it was over. Why did you do that? I, I just wanted to go fast. <laughs> and there was a time I jumped out of the rowboat in the middle of a lake, s announcing that I was going to swim to the other side. That didn't last long. <laughs> but, you know, my dad never brings that stuff up. He is so happy. I call him every week on the way to scum usually. And they're so happy to talk to me, my, my mom and my dad. It's a wonderful relationship. And it's just getting more wonderful over the years. So, you know, those of you who have incorrigible children, there's hope. <laughs> just push them toward Jesus. That's all I have to say. Because I think if it wasn't for Jesus in my life, that uh, there still would be a lot of damage. So I, I've titled this sermon, kind of a weird title, How to Get Jesus Distressed. You could say exasperated. You could say upset. You could say disappointed. I played with all those words. And we don't usually think about Jesus being distressed. Well, maybe he's distressed with the bad people, but certainly he isn't distressed with me. He has tons of patience. He's so nice. He's so understanding. He's so chill with me, right? And he really has it in for those bad people, especially the bad religious people, because we all know that of all bad people, religious bad people are the worst. And Jesus had a lot to say to them. But we never think about Jesus being distressed or upset with us. But he is. I remember uh, my very first co-pastor here at Scum of the Earth, uh, Reese Roper, used to have a saying, um, don't, don't make the baby Jesus cry. <laughs> Meaning, don't live your life in such a way that you would bring distress to Jesus. But Reese, being clever and cute, uh, could say, don't make the baby Jesus cry. So I almost titled the sermon, don't make the baby Jesus cry, but it's not Christmas time. Here's a passage where Jesus gets distressed. Not with the bad people, but with his 
friends and his followers. So Luke 9.37, it'll be on the screen behind me. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Now, just to give you some background, uh, this is the mountain of transfiguration they're coming down from. So they have just had that experience, all glorious light. This sentence leads us to believe that maybe the transfiguration took place in the evening or at night, which would have been amazing still, right? Even more amazing. Light show at night. So they're up there where the voice of God speaks clearly. They get to meet with Moses and Elijah. They're coming down the mountain where the air is thick, where you don't hear the voice of God nearly as well, where there's a world of sin and woe and trouble. It's a big change in ecosystems spiritually from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain. And they're coming down. And there's a crowd waiting for Jesus as usual. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg you to... Well, I... So, this guy's got one son. Now, just to give you a little... Historical cultural context. The people originally there, hearing these words from the Father, would have had even more compassion for that man than is normal. Because he has an only son. He has no other children. Just one kid. In those days, if you're a farmer, especially you had as many kids as you possibly could to help work the family farm. It was cheap labor. You all got to eat from the fruits of your toil. But he's got one son, and that son is extremely out of sorts. He's demon-possessed, is what the dad is saying. And he's having convulsions. He's having seizures. I mean, this is just unbearable. Think about it if you were that father. You've got a kid you can never leave alone. I'm going to talk about special needs. This kid could, he could choke on his own tongue during these convulsions if you're not there to make sure he keeps breathing. You can't go anywhere and leave him by himself. One of you, either your wife or you, have to be around him all the time. All the other families in the village... Understand that your son's the demoniac. And they're not going to let their kids play with your crazy kid. Because they're afraid their kids may get hurt. Or maybe even possessed. So he's ostracized. He has no future, this father does. Because in that age, there weren't retirement plans. There weren't pensions. Your kids are the ones who took care of you when you got older. And you've got a kid who can barely survive. And how is he going to help you when you're old? So if you were a first century person listening to this father's tale of woe, you would have a huge heart for him. And he had heard that Jesus and his disciples expelled demons, so he came to them. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. 
This is like coming to church and not getting what you need. Like leaving empty-handed. Now, they knew the difference between demon possession and epilepsy back then. Records show that Julius Caesar had epilepsy, and Julius Caesar predates this story by quite a bit. And there's something about demon possession that is different than just a physical problem. I mean, you can almost feel the darkness in the room when someone is demonized. I remember one time, um, this is several years ago, and I've told the story before, but I was coming to church, I get a call from Jesse Heilman. He says, Mike, can you come right away? Um, we have a woman who's having seizures or convulsions in the foyer at Church in the City where we're meeting. And my first question was, have you called 911? He said, no. He goes, I think it might be spiritual. I said, tell you what, why don't you call 911 and I'll be right there. Because I wasn't able to figure it out from that distance. I get to the place we're meeting. I walk in the foyer. As soon as I walk in, I could, I could feel it. It was like a smothering wet blanket in the air. Bob Till, who is a missionary with Greater European Missions, lifelong missionary, very wise man of God, was pacing back and forth praying as other few folks were around this girl who was convulsing. And um, I went up to Bob and I said, Bob, I said, this feels spiritual, is it? And he just nods his head. Yes, definitely it is. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is that these people aren't stupid. If it's demonic possession, they can sense it too, same as we can these days. And this guy had heard that there was hope with this group of people, and he came, and the disciples were trying to drive it out, but they could not. Now, this is difficult because back at the beginning of chapter 9 in Luke, Jesus has commissioned the disciples to go out, preach the good news, to heal people, and to drive out all demons. He gave them authority over all. The Greek word there means all means everything, all of them. And yet they can't do it here. And so the disciples, I'm sure, are frustrated. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do what they've been commissioned to do. They're just so glad to see Jesus, I would imagine, come down that mountain. And so, hail the conquering hero, the Lord, the Master, the Teacher, the Rabbi, the Messiah. Finally, help has arrived. And what are the first words that Jesus utters? Verse 41, O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. Who are you and what have you done with the real Jesus? Because this is not what we're expecting. We're trying our best here. You know, like, come on. Jesus is distressed. He's disappointed. He's maybe even exasperated. Why? 
Maybe he expected more out of the disciples at this point. I don't know. Maybe he was really upset because of the turmoil this father and son had to go through. But he doesn't see it as like just something that happened. It's like you unbelieving and perverse generation is what he says. Not the kind of Jesus that we really think about much, right? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. Now, this is just like the devil. This kid is finally coming to a place, to a person who can help him. He's walking toward Jesus. And the demon takes one last shot. Throws him on the ground in a convulsion. Like, you're not going to get there. You ever been set on changing your life, turning it around? Maybe you're struggling with an addiction. Maybe you're thinking about coming to celebrate recovery June 8th. I want you to expect the devil to take one last shot at you, at least, before you get there. And he does this because he hates you. The demons hate us. They hate us primarily because we're made in the image of God. And they hate that. Also, we've turned our lives over to Christ. And they know that Christ has sealed their fate. So, when you think of demons, I want you to think about the worst, most unfeeling, uncaring, unsympathetic, aggressive, angry, spiteful, hateful terrorist times a hundred. Because that's what a demon is. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. That's half a verse. <laughs> it's done. It's over. All's better now. It's like he just took his little finger and flicked the demon. Like, oh, get out of here. Maybe he just batted an eyelash. Because you see, when it comes to spiritual power, Jesus has the infinite power of God available to him. And demons, no matter how powerful they are, are finite. So infinite always beats finite. Always. Part of the problem I have with modern horror movies is they make you feel like demons uh, can overcome you, overpower you. And this is not true. It's just not true. It's a lie. Infinite power trumps finite power every single time. It's like all the oceans on the face of the earth, all the water under the mantle, which we've just found out about, all the oceans, every planet, in every solar system, in every galaxy, in the entire universe, compared to like one drop of water. And then it's still not a good picture of how much stronger God is than Satan. All right. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. No kidding. Well, here's the deal. 
They not only saw this happen, this kid go from convulsing and foaming at the mouth, his eyes rolling in the back of his head, whatever he was doing, you know, to all of a sudden being normal. And on top of that, that heavy feeling, that darkness that had surrounded them, it had dissipated. It was gone. Just like the time at Church in the City where a group of us prayed and the demon left the young woman. Just like that. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, I used to be an English teacher for about five years after college. And uh, one of the things that we used to do when looking at literature was to think about themes that the author wanted to get across to us through various characters. You can do this with almost any piece of writing, including the Bible. So even though this is a real life story, Luke's written it down under the guidance of the Holy Spirit with some specific themes in mind. And so we're going to look at the three main characters. I've kind of got them up here on the screen. Upper right-hand corner is the father and the son. Below that, the disciples who are watching this whole thing happen. And then, of course, ending with, with Jesus, the hero of our story, the protagonist, so to speak. So Jesus comes down, and he looks at the father after being requested to heal his son. And instead of answering with compassion the way we would think, Jesus starts basically reminiscing about something Moses had said in Deuteronomy 32. Remember, Jesus just got done talking to Moses and Elijah, the cream of Israel's crop. And then he comes down to this morass. And this is what Moses wrote, I don't know, 1,500 years before. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 3, I will proclaim the name of the Lord... Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His words are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and a crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father, your Creator, who made and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your fathers, and they will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. Moses had the same feelings about the people that he was leading. And he called them a warped and a crooked generation, which is pretty much the same meaning for perverse in Jesus' words. Now, Jesus adds unbelieving. Jesus answers this present situation by including faithless. It's really the Greek word faith, pistis, with the negative in front of it, so it means not faith. 
This is a generation of not faith, is what he's saying. You're unbelieving. You're a faithless generation, in addition to being crooked and perverse. And he's talking to this father. So the dad is desperate. He comes to the right place, but evidently, according to the words of Jesus, he lacks faith. If you look in one of the other Gospels, there's a little added highlight about the interaction between Jesus and the Father. Because the Father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, please help my son. And Jesus looks at him and says, if I can do anything? And the Father replies, I believe, help my unbelief. Which is one of the greatest lines in the entire Bible. I believe, help my unbelief. Because we're all there. We're all, I've got some faith. I'm here, aren't I? But, yeah, you put your finger on it. You called me out. I, I guess I'm not sure that you would do this or you could do this. Now, there are many Christians, fathers and mothers to this day who are just as miserable about their children as this father was about his son. What should a Christian father or mother do in a case like this? They should do the same thing that this dad did, and that is bring their children before Jesus. Entreat God to save your children. God may keep you waiting for a while just to improve your faith, but there is no other answer besides in Him. Jesus says to the Father, all things are possible to him who believes in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. All things are possible to him who believes. And Jesus comes to the rescue. Even though his disciples totally failed this particular episode in their ministry. Because oh, believing in a perverse generation includes his disciples. Does it not? Jesus had given them power and authority to do exactly what they didn't do. And so Jesus is distressed about this. Timelines place Jesus about maybe six to nine months away from the cross at this point. So Jesus has turned a corner in his mind. You'll begin to see it as we go through the rest of the gospel. He is heading toward Jerusalem. He knows his destiny with death. And he's just hoping that, you know, these things should have been taken care of. Now, the disciples 
blow it when it comes to the deliverance of the little boy. But the disciples also blow it, if you remember from the last part of the reading, is they're not, they're not getting it when Jesus says he's going to be handed over to men in Jerusalem. He has begun talking about his crucifixion, and they just don't understand, or they don't want to understand, or both. I think it's both from what we read. Nobody's asking Jesus, could you please explain what you mean? Because, you know, sometimes you're talking metaphor, and sometimes you're talking just literally, and we don't know, is it metaphor or is it literal? We never know. Tell us, please. They could have said something. He might have answered them. But nobody wanted to ask him. Maybe they didn't want to ask him because, ah, we screwed up. We couldn't do this thing. We got kind of chastised, got shouted at by Jesus. And I'm not, I'm not saying another word. I, mean, I get that, right? In Mark chapter 9, we're given, again, a little bit extra about this conversation between the disciples and Jesus. Because afterwards, they come and they ask him, how come we couldn't cast it out? And Jesus says this. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. By prayer. In other words, you don't have faith, right? And you don't have faith because unlike me, you don't pray. <laughs> we just got done with the Transfiguration Mountain and the disciples are falling asleep while Jesus is praying. It's interesting. <laughs> when you think about sleep and being awake in the life of Jesus and the disciples. When Jesus is praying, very often they're sleeping. That happens in Gethsemane again. All right? And then when Jesus is sleeping, like in the middle of a storm on the lake, they're freaking out. And I'm thinking the difference may be prayer, honestly. Jesus is content, but they're not. There's a story of a passenger ship going across the Atlantic in the 1800s, and uh, the captain's family was on board, his wife, his little girl, and all of a sudden the storm comes up, and the, the, the ship is being buffeted by waves, and you know, passengers are getting kind of scared, and so the little girl turns to her mom, and she says, is, 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 is father at the helm? And the mom says, yes, honey, father's at the helm. And the little girl goes, oh, good. And then she just nestles under her mom's arm and goes back to sleep because she knows it's going to be okay. She has every confidence in her daddy. It's kind of like that with Jesus. He can sleep when they're all freaking out. And I think it's because he prays while they're sleeping. There's a link between prayer and faith. I don't know how to put it. I'm so grateful that Scum of the Earth has had an interest and a focus on prayer for the past two and a half years. Join with us once a month. I mean, you can pray on your own, no problem. I get that. I hope you do. We should stay in contact with Jesus. The same way that Jesus stood in contact with his Father. 
And there was enough contact between Jesus and God so that when this demon thing came along, it wasn't a problem for Jesus. Jesus didn't reach into His divine nature and pull out some superhuman power and expel the demon because He was God. No, that's not the way that Jesus worked. The Gospels tell us that Jesus does only the things He sees His Father doing. He says only the things He sees His Father saying or hears His Father saying. Jesus is operating to God as a human, the same way that we're supposed to operate with Him as divine. And so the disciples fail a second time by, by being afraid to ask Jesus. But I think maybe it's because they've got a false understanding of righteous anger. I mean, they all had earthly fathers, earthly mothers, right? I mean, you have, I have, my dad wasn't perfect. I mean, he got mad at me, he got angry with me, and he wasn't always exactly wholly righteous about it. So I don't know what that looks like. You certainly can't find it in me. My kids don't know what it looks like. None of us knows what righteous anger looks like unless we look at Jesus. We often project onto God the human idea that He may be angry with us, but He's far, far above us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He still wants to be around us. He still wants to talk with us. Not unlike my 85-year-old dad. Still wants to talk to me. Still wants to be around me. I see that reflection of the divine in our relationship. And then let's go to Jesus finally. He's frustrated. He's disappointed. Even though the Jesus disciples are incompetent and on the dark at this particular point, Jesus is fully in command. He's not, he's not out of sorts that way. He knows what's happening. He healed the kid in half a verse. So this story should encourage us to bring our problems to the Lord because He's gracious to work it out on our behalf. And even if He gets distressed with us, you know, he's headed to the cross. He's headed to the cross. The Greek word for, for how long am I to bear with you, how long am I going to put up with you, is the same Greek word we find in Ephesians 4.2, which says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Putting up with one another in love in love, humbly, gently, completely. That's what's going on. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, Jesus has just declared that He's heading toward the cross. He's going to die for them. You're going, why would you want to die for these idiots? Why would you want to die for us? We're, you know, Jesus, what, I mean, 
we mess up when we're not trying to mess up. These guys were trying to do the right thing. They were trying to help the dad. The father was coming to you. He's trying to do the right thing. I mean, if we mess up when we're trying to do the right thing, then, then you know how badly you mess up when we just willfully want to disobey and go the opposite direction. But Jesus is headed toward the cross. We may not be worth it, but I'm telling you what, His death makes us worth it. So, can Jesus get frustrated with me and you? Yeah, He can. But He still loves you. He will bear up with you. He will put up with you for the rest of your life. And you know, that kind of makes me feel good because I know I'm a schmuck. I mean, I do. So the fact that Jesus knows I am and says so and reacts to it with emotions that He he made emotions... So he's an emotional God, but it doesn't matter. He still loves me. He's still going that direction. He's still going to die for me. Sacrificial love will win out. So when pastors or brothers and sisters in Christ come to you and they're a little miffed with the way you're leading your life, don't hold up a cross and push them away and say, be gone from me, you terrible religious fanatic freaks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expel you before you expel me. Because part of that is, I think, God trying to get us to understand that what we're doing is making the baby Jesus cry. And it's not good for us. Ever. We're going to celebrate communion in just a couple of moments. And when we take communion today, let's think about what's going on here at the end of the story. Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem toward certain death crucifixion, and eventually resurrection. Why? Because He wants to put up with us for eternity. Maybe He got a little miffed. Well, you know what? He has every right to get a little miffed. Does it mean that He loves us any less? No. Does it mean that he's going to withhold himself from the pain of crucifixion? No. It means he's going to go through it because on the other side, when it's all said and done, and this life is nothing but a faded memory, he will be together with us in the new kingdom Feasting, dancing, singing, enjoying each other, and there will be no more disappointment, no more frustration. He will have a perfected group of saints 
We will be in a perfect place where there is no sorrow, no pain, and no shedding of any tears. And I look forward to that. And I know because Jesus has emotions, He is looking forward to that with joy. At Scum of the Earth, when we take communion, uh, we ask if you're following Jesus, you're welcome to join us. We uh, have a loaf that you can tear off some bread, and then you dip it into the cup and eat it that way. There is uh, a gluten-free cracker also that you can use. We use grape juice and not wine uh, for very specific reasons, because so many of us have been struggling with addictions. But nonetheless, we celebrate the Lord's table together. So please come and celebrate Jesus' love for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you've taught us through this episode. Help us. Help us to make you happy, to make you proud, and not to distress you with our lives. We can't do this without you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.